It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the most famous hymns of all time is the hymn Amazing Grace, and this hymn wasn't written as a general song about God's grace. It was written as a personal song about God's grace. It was written by John Newton about his personal experience of God's grace upon his life, and uh, as he wrote this song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, speaking of John Newton, I was once lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You know, he was writing about, you know, what he was versus what God had made him to be through his grace. You see, John Newton, he was an ungodly, mean, angry sea captain who was a part of the slave trade. He was despised so much by his own crew, they tried to kill him. Uh, He was just a man that most people, I'm sure, would have considered, you know, God could never save this guy, and if he ever did, he surely couldn't restore him, he couldn't use him. And the wonderful thing about God's grace is that he was able to save a man like John Newton. He's able to save the most wicked sinners, but he's not just able to save them, he can restore them, and then he can use them for his glory. John Newton became a pastor. He became one of the leading voices against the slave trade, and he wrote one of the most beloved hymns of all time. And Amazing Grace, I think, is so beloved because, you know, all of us can relate to the words of the song, and we can place ourselves where John Newton placed himself. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and we put our name there. I once was lost. I am now found, was blind, but now I see. You know, I love the story of John Newton because I love stories of sinful people that God restores and then that God uses. And the reason I love it so much is because it brings me comfort. Hopefully it brings you comfort. You know, that God can take a sinful person like me, a sinful person like you, and he can restore us, but he can also use us for his glory. Well, this morning we have a wonderful privilege of looking at a story with amazing redemption and restoration. We're going to see how God restores Peter so that Peter can now be used of God in an amazing way. And as we look at how God restores Peter, my hope is that you will be encouraged with the truth that he can restore you. He can restore me. That as you see the sin of Peter, but then the restoration and the use that God gives to Peter, that you would recognize that he can do the same for you. As John Newton wrote, God's grace is truly amazing. He gives us what we don't deserve, especially when we've done some horrible sin like deny him three times. He saves us, he forgives us, he restores us, and then he uses us. Alan Carr wrote this, In these verses we find the Lord Jesus recommissioning Simon Peter for service. 
I'm sure that Peter felt that his work in ministry was forever gone, but Jesus came to call him back into the fight. This was a time of unique fellowship and restoration between Jesus and Simon Peter. In these few verses, Jesus freed Peter from the bondage of his sin and failure and sent him back about the business of serving the Lord in his church. The same will be true for every backslidden child of God who returns to the Father's house today. Not only will He forgive your sins, but He can restore you to a place of service for His glory. He will put you back on the battlefield. He longs to meet with you today to put you back into that place of service. You still have a friend in Jesus, regardless of how far you have fallen. You know, each one of us has sinned. Each one of us continues to sin against Jesus. And after we sin, oftentimes, you know, we think, you know what, man, I don't know if God could still use me. I don't know if God could, you know, have me serve him again. And let me encourage you. When you sin, not only will Jesus forgive you and restore you, but he'll also use you for his glory. As Alan Carr wrote, you still have a friend in Jesus regardless of how far you have fallen. Now, before we look at what Jesus does to restore Peter, I think it's important just to remind ourselves of what is it that Peter needed to be restored from? What is it that Peter did that needed restoration? And I, and I want to take a moment to consider that because it isn't just the denial, it's also what goes with the denial of Jesus. And if you remember, um, Peter and the disciples and Jesus are in the upper room the night before Jesus is arrested, the night before Jesus is crucified. And Jesus shares some news with these disciples that they didn't like to hear. And especially Peter, he was the most vocal against what Jesus declared to them. And Matthew's gospel gives us the most detail about this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples and the response of Peter to it. And so Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35 says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, that this night before the rooster close, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So Jesus tells the disciples something that they didn't want to accept, something that they didn't want to hear, that each one of them was going to be made to stumble because of Jesus that night. And he's specifically speaking of when he speaks of, you know, when the shepherd's taken, the sheep scatter, that they're going to abandon him when he's arrested. Well, Peter does not believe that's something that he would do. And so he says, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You see, what Peter is saying is even if the rest of these disciples stumble, abandon you, don't love you enough to stay with you, that's not me, Jesus. I will stay with you. I'm the one of all these guys who wouldn't do that. And this is quite a bold statement from Peter. Peter's basically telling Jesus, if you think I would be made to stumble, Jesus, you don't know me very well. I would never be made to stumble. Well, the problem isn't that Jesus doesn't know Peter very well. The problem is that Peter doesn't know himself very well. 
And Jesus reveals how much he knows about Peter by telling something to Peter that was even more difficult to hear. He says to Peter, Assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Well, if Peter didn't like the idea of him scattering when Jesus is arrested, he surely doesn't like the idea of being told he was going to deny Jesus three times. And Peter, quite confident in his love and commitment for Jesus, thinks, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Even if I have to die with you, I wouldn't deny you. Jesus, I would die. I'd give my life. There's no way you would find me denying you. Peter thought his love for Jesus, his commitment for Jesus, was greater than it really was, and also was greater than all the other disciples in the upper room that night. And that's what makes his denial of Jesus all the more difficult to deal with. You see, it's difficult to deal with failure. We all fail. We all sin. It's hard to deal with that, but you know what? It gets way more difficult when you make some bold proclamation that you would never do that thing. That that, that you would never fall into that sin. That you would never deny Jesus and then you turn around and do it. Now it's way more difficult to have to deal with the shame not only of the action itself, but also that proclamation that you never would fail in that way. When I was at Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria, one of the weekends we decided to have a a ping pong tournament there with that arrows pointing in the grass there. Uh, This place is known as the castle. It's a beautiful place. But I was pretty good at ping pong among average players. And so we decided to set up, you know, we had these groups and there was four of us in each group. And the winner of the group would go on to play this single elimination tournament to see, you know, who was going to be the ultimate ping pong champ of the Bible College. And so I beat everybody in my group and, and got to the single elimination tournament, uh, and as we're about to start this, this small little Chinese girl arrives. She was a friend of one of the Bible college students, and she sees us playing ping pong, and you know, she asks if she can join us, and we're like, you know, we already got to the single elimination portion of this, so if you were to play and lose, then you know, that would be it. You'd only get one game to play, and her friend says, oh no, she won't lose. She would crush all of you. Now, I was like Peter thinking, that's not true of me. That might be true of all these other people that are playing here, but she's not going to crush me. And so they need a volunteer. You know, who's going to play this girl? We already had the whole tournament set up of who was playing who. So you know, I volunteered to beat her, and I just played a girl who claimed that she was good, and I beat her 21 to nothing. So I'm thinking, yeah, I don't really buy into this claim. And then as we're about to play, people start making these comments of like, oh, you're going to get crushed by a girl and things like that. And so I vocally say, there's no way I'm losing this game. And I serve the ball to her in the first play, as she just slams this thing back to me. She crushes me 21 to 3. And it wasn't just embarrassing because I hate to lose, but the whole you know, statement that I would never lose to this girl made it all the more difficult to endure that loss. And so Peter here, he's not just having to deal with the reality that he denied Jesus three times. He's also having to deal with the reality that he boldly proclaimed, I wouldn't do it. All these other guys might do it, but Jesus, I love you more. I'm more committed. I would never deny you. And so he's having to deal with that humiliation of the claim he made about himself. But you know what? Maybe I want you to think about this morning. Have you ever made a claim that you would never do a particular th- uh, sin? Or maybe you just thought it. Maybe you didn't actually say it out loud, but you, know, you saw someone else engaged in something and you thought to yourself, <laughs> I would never do that. 
Oh, you would never catch me, you know, doing that. Or, or maybe, you, you know, you're watching people gossiping. And you're thinking, oh, I would never do that. And then you find yourself doing it. Or you see people watching certain things. Well, I would never watch those things. And then all of a sudden you find yourself watching those things. Or you see someone treating someone in a really horrible way. Well, I would never treat someone like that. And then you find yourself treating them like that. You know, when that happens, not only do you have to deal with the sin you've committed, you also have to deal with the humiliation of the claim, I would never do that. You would never find me engaging in that kind of activity. Well, that's where Peter's at in his life as we come to John 21. He has the sadness and the guilt of denying Jesus three times, but also the humiliation of boldly proclaiming he would never do what he ended up doing, not just once or twice, but three times. You see, Peter believed he loved Jesus more than the other disciples. He believed he was more committed to Jesus than them. But you know what? His denial proved that was wrong. His denial of Jesus kind of opened his eyes to the reality of his love for Jesus versus the other disciples' love for Jesus. And as we look at what Jesus does to restore Peter, we're going to see five important things in this restoration process that Jesus and Peter go through. And as we look at that, I'm going to highlight each one of these five things because really, this is the way in which Jesus often restores you and I as well. And so as we look at what Jesus does for Peter and his great failure and humiliation, I hope it brings encouragement to you to realize, hey, Jesus, if he can restore Peter, he can restore me. And this is kind of the process in which Jesus will go through to do that. Let's see how this starts here. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19, we see this restoration of Peter. It says this. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheeps. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourselves and walked where you wish. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. The first way that Jesus restores Peter is something really that we, we saw a little bit last week, and I want to connect that to what we see here because it's such an important part of the restoration process. If you remember, Jesus told all of the disciples who were in Jerusalem, you guys, I want you to go to a particular mountain in Galilee, and I want you to wait there for me, and I'm going to come and reveal myself to you. And as they're waiting there in Galilee, Peter gets impatient and decides, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going fishing. I'm leaving the mountain here in Galilee, and I'm going to head down to the Sea of Galilee. And this was in disobedience to what Jesus told him to do. And six other of the disciples say, you know what, we're going fishing with you. And as they're fishing, they fish all night, they catch nothing. Jesus comes to the shore. He comes to where they are. He provi provides this wonderful miracle of a whole catch of fish. And then he provides a breakfast for them, and he serves them that breakfast. 
And right when they're done eating that breakfast, we have this conversation here between Jesus and Peter where he restores him. But even notice here that in their disobedience, they're not where they're supposed to be. Jesus doesn't go to the mountain and say, you know what, this is where I told him to go. I'll wait for him to come back. He goes to where they are. He pursues them. He specifically pursues Peter because he needs to restore Peter. And so the first thing I want you to note here is Jesus was the one pursuing Peter. He came to where Peter was so that he could bring Peter to that place of restoration. Peter left the mountain that Jesus told him to go to, but Jesus comes to where Peter is. So the first thing that Jesus does to restore us is he pursues us when we sin. You don't have to know if you're, you're like this. I know that when I sin, oftentimes my tendency is one to distance myself from the Lord. And, and there's lots of reasons that I do that, probably that you do that. There's that guilt, that shame, that feeling of I'm not worthy and maybe God doesn't want time with me. And, and so, you know, we sometimes have a tendency when we sin to try to get away from God, get away from Jesus, distance ourselves from him. And the wonderful thing I love about Jesus is even when we do that, he pursues us. Even when we're running from him, he's running to us because he loves us too much to allow us to run from him when we so desperately need restoration. He loves us too much to, to run from him and not continue to serve him, not continue to do what we're supposed to do because we haven't been restored back to useful service. And so he pursues us even when we're not doing what we're told. You know, you see a great story of that with Jonah. But Jesus loves us too much. He's going to pursue you because he wants to restore you. You know, all of us who have parents, we have children who have sinned against us. And when they sin against us, I know with my girls, oftentimes they know they're in trouble. They want to kind of keep the distance. They're, they're, they're worried about what might happen. And, you know, we love them too much just to allow that to continue. We pursue them. We pursue them out of love because we want to restore them and restore our relationship with them, uh, and we want to get things back to the way they are supposed to be. And that's ultimately why Jesus pursues us when we sin. He does it in order to restore us personally, but also to restore the relationship that's been hurt by our sin against him, and he does it because he loves us and wants what's best for us. So the first thing that Jesus does to restore us is he pursues us when we sin. The second thing he does is seen at the start of this conversation now. The breakfast has been eaten. These six disciples and Peter are there. And Jesus and Peter are now going to have this conversation. Notice what Jesus says first to Peter. Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now remember... Peter's birth-given name wasn't Peter, it was Simon. His dad's name is Jonah. So officially back then, you would be Simon, the son of Jonah. That, that's who you are. That would be the, the official name that Peter would have. And it's interesting that, that Jesus doesn't call him Peter. But remember, Jesus gave him that name. It was when he asked, who do men say that I am? And it was Peter who was the one to say, you're the Christ. And it was at that point that Jesus says, you know what? you're no longer going to be Simon. I'm changing your name to Peter. Now, it's interesting. Simon, it means shifting sand. Peter means a rock. 
And so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new name, a new name that kind of describes what I'm going to make you into. Right now you're shifting sand, but I'm going to turn you into a rock, someone that I can depend on, someone that's going to be a pillar in what I'm going to do in the future. But you know, one of Peter's problems was that he often thought he was the rock when actually he was shifting sand. And this was so clearly seen as he makes this public proclamation of, hey, you know what, if all these other disciples scatter from you, I would never do that. I'm the rock. I'm not the guy who would do that. But the reality was, no, you're still shifting sand. You still got some big problems, Peter. And it's interesting, if you look through the, the Gospels, almost every time that Jesus approaches Peter to correct him or rebuke him, he calls him Simon, son of Jonah. He doesn't use the name Peter. He uses the old name Simon, and probably just to, to bring to Peter's remembrance, you're not acting like the rock. You're acting like what you used to be. I have something that I'm changing you into. I want you to be this rock, this person who I can depend upon, this person who's going to live for me. But right now, you're acting like shifting sand again, Peter. And so Jesus uses that name Simon, son of Jonah. But you know what? Then he asks him a very important question. Do you love me more than these? And that these most likely, some people have some different thoughts to fit the context, are the disciples. Because remember, Peter's the one who said, hey, if all these guys, you know, if they stumble, I wouldn't. If they would leave you, I wouldn't. Peter's already said, you know, my love for you, Jesus, is greater than the love of these other disciples. And so now Jesus is asking him again, do you still believe that? The night before I was arrested, you made that claim. And then you denied me three times. Do you still believe that you love me more than these other disciples? What Jesus is doing is addressing Peter's sin. Still have more confidence in yourself than you should, Peter? You still believe you have a love for me that you really don't? Now, Jesus asked Peter this question, do you love me three times? And we're told Peter's grieved that he says it three times. Peter denied Jesus three times. And that just emphasized that reality of what he did against Jesus. But Jesus is doing something very important here, addressing the sin that he wants to restore Peter from. Because before Jesus can restore Peter, he has to address and deal with the sin that Peter committed that needs to be restored. If the sin's not addressed and the sin's not dealt with, then restoration cannot take place. You can't be restored if you're not willing to address the sin that caused the problem in the first place. So the second thing that Jesus does to restore us is he addresses the sin that needs to be dealt with. And this is such an important part of the restoration process that Jesus brings to our life when we've sinned. Because before you and I are restored by Jesus, He wants to make really clear what it is He's restoring us from. And we need to do this, why? Because one, it helps us to deal with our sin properly, but also so that we can be confident in His forgiveness. Confident that He truly is restoring us, even though we did that 
big sin or little sin or horrible sin or however we're going to categorize it, when that is brought to the surface, then we can be sure that has been dealt with. And I can now move forward in service to Jesus and that sin's not going to stop me anymore. James Bryce, or Boyce, wrote this. Does it seem cruel to you that the Lord asked Peter three times in front of the others whether he loved him in clear reference to his earlier threefold denial? It was not cruel. The truly cruel thing would have been to let the matter go on festering in Peter so that throughout his entire life, both he and the others would think that he was somehow inferior and unworthy of the office, though he had undoubtedly repented of the sin with weeping, as the Bible tells us. The kind thing was the public restoration so that Peter and the others would henceforth know that Peter's past was past and that the Lord had himself commissioned him to further service. God does not wish to be cruel to us. Though the experience of confession is painful, it is to end the matter so that we can pick up and go on with Jesus. You know, when it comes to sin, often our tendency is to want to ignore it, not want to deal with it, hope that it goes away. And it never does. It just gets worse. You can't just allow sin to just uh, sit there and think that it's not going to cause more problems. And Jesus loves us too much to let us do that. So after he pursues us when we have sinned, he addresses our sin so that he can then restore us from it and bring us back to a place of usefulness to him. The third thing that Jesus does to restore us is seen in the question that he asked Peter and then Peter's response to these questions. Notice that three times Jesus asked Peter pretty much the same question. Do you love me? The first time he added that statement, more than these. Do you love me more than the disciples? And then the next two times he, he takes that out and he just asks, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Now, before we get into the question that Jesus asked here, I want you to think about what Jesus doesn't say as he comes to restore Peter. Maybe some things that you would have been thinking if someone did this to you. He doesn't say, some friend you turned out to be. I'm really disappointed in you. You let me down. You're all talk, Simon. Boy, was I ever wrong about you. You call yourself a disciple? Jesus doesn't say any of those things that, that sometimes come out of our mouth when we're restoring someone, really more rebuking them. When we're angry because someone sinned against us, this is often the way in which we come and approach them. But notice Jesus doesn't do that. You see, Jesus didn't come to inflict more pain on Peter. He came to relieve Peter's pain. Peter's in enough pain from denying Jesus three times. Jesus isn't trying to make it worse. He's trying to alleviate it. He's there to restore him, and he does it in a loving way, not a condemning way. I think that's important for us to remember that godly restoration doesn't seek to hurt and to condemn. It seeks to encourage and build up. Now, this loving restoration of Peter definitely really stuck with him. Years later, he wrote a letter. And in 1 Peter 4.8, he wrote this. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. 
Peter wasn't just saying this from an intellectual knowledge. He was saying this from an experiential knowledge. He knew this to be true because he experienced the love of Jesus in such a way that covered a multitude of his own personal sins. He wrote this because, man, here on this beach, when he might have thought, it's over, I'm no longer useful, God can never use me, Jesus restores him in such a loving way that Peter now writes, man, Beyond everything else, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So three times Jesus asked Peter the same question, do you love me? And notice that each time as as Jesus asked this question, Peter responds with the same answer, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, something important to note here, and I've said it before, and this is one of those words that we have in the English language that we only have one word for, which is the word love. And so each time we have this same word translated love, and we're thinking, well, they must just be using the same word, but actually, they're using two different Greek words here in this conversation between Jesus and Peter, and those two different Greek words are agape and phileo. Now, Agape is the purest, noblest form of love, which is not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or sentimental relationship. Agape loves the unlovable, and it does it in an unconditional way. It's the highest love of one will, and it implies total commitment. And this is a love that, you know, most often through the Bible, when it speaks of God's love for us, it's using this Greek word, agape. Now, phileo is a friendship love. To be a friend to one another, to be fond of someone, to have that kind of uh, friendship affection. So agape is that unconditional love of total commitment, and phileo is a friendship love to be fond of someone. Now, I want you to note here, the first two times that Jesus asked the question, do you love me, he's using this Greek word, agape. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is, hey, Peter, do you have an unconditional love of total commitment for me? That's what I'm asking you. And Peter, in his response to Jesus, says, you know that I love you, but that word is phileo. So he's saying, well, you know that I have a fondness for you. You know that I have a friend kind of love towards you. Jesus. And two times Jesus does this. Do you love me? Speaking of this agape love. Do you have this unconditional love of total commitment for me, Peter? And both times Peter says, I phileo you. I'm fond of you. And he doesn't even say that. He says, you know that I'm fond of you, Jesus. But you know, he's not willing to say yes to Jesus' question. Peter Do you have an unconditional love for me of total commitment? A few nights before this, he would have said, absolutely. The night when he said, all these other guys may stumble, but I wouldn't. If Jesus would have asked then, do you agape me? Do you have an unconditional love for me of total commitment? Absolutely I do. I don't know about these guys, but I surely have that kind of love for you, Jesus. Now Jesus poses this question to him, and and he's not willing to say yes because he knows it's not true. Well, well, you know, I'm fond of you. You know, it changes here. 
The third time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He no longer uses the word agape. The third time he says, do you phileo me? Peter, are you fond of me? Do you love me like a friend? We're told Peter was grieved because Jesus said to this to him a third time, do you love phileo me? And there's really two reasons for this. One I just noted earlier, the third time kind of emphasized the fact that he denied Jesus three times, but I think it goes even beyond that. Because it's one thing to say, do you agape me? Do you have this unconditional commitment for me, Peter? But now Jesus is saying, are you even fond of me? And that would be hard for Peter. He's listening to this, and here's this question. Are you even fond of me? And Peter, notice his response. Lord, you know all things. Before he said, you know that I am. And now he just says, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. You see, Peter recognized now that Jesus knows him better than he knows himself. A couple nights earlier, he thought, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Deny you? No way. I die for you. Scatter from you? No way. I'll be there even if these guys aren't. You don't know me very well. I'm going to prove myself to you, Jesus. And after denying him three times, he realizes, oh, actually, Jesus knew me really well. I just didn't know myself so well. And so now as Jesus poses these questions to Peter, this final one where it's, are you even fond of me? He's just like, you know what? You know it all. I don't even want to say I am because I don't even know. You know if I truly am or not. I want to think that I am, but Lord, you know it all. And here's one of the big problems that Peter had and he's starting to overcome. And his big problem was pride. He thought he was so much stronger. He thought he was so much more commitment. He thought he had so much more love for Jesus than he really did. He thought so much more of himself than he should have. And these three questions that Jesus poses to Peter are really helping him come to a place of humility, come to a recognition. So Peter, remember when you said that you love me more than these? Do you still feel that way? Are you still that prideful guy from a few nights ago? Do you still have a belief in yourself and your love and commitment that's just not true? Or have you humbled yourself? Have you come to recognize where you're really at? And the responses of Peter shows that he's come to this place of, yeah, I'm not where I claimed I was. I recognize I don't love you like I said. The third thing Jesus does to restore us is he helps us to see our pride so we can humble ourselves before him. Notice Jesus does this in a loving way, not a condemning way. Very loving in helping Peter recognize this reality, but it's so important because pride is one of the biggest hindrances for us in the restoration process. You know, the Bible tells us God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when we're prideful, God's going to resist us. He wants to restore us, but when we're thinking, I don't need any restoration. Peter could have still made this claim, absolutely, I love you with an agape love. I still love you more than all these disciples. He could have stayed in that prideful nonsense that wasn't true. Even after his denial totally proved what he really was, he could have allowed his pride to make him think he was something he wasn't, and that would have made the restoration process not capable of happening. He had to come to this place of humility so he could be restored in the way that God wanted to restore him. And Jesus is loving enough to bring Peter to that place. 
help Peter come to recognize this is what you were, what you were claiming, but it's not what you are. Humble yourself and admit where you're at. And let me restore you. Let me help you get to the place where I want you to be so you can be useful to me. The fourth thing Jesus does to restore us is seen in what Jesus tells Peter to do after each question that he asks him. Notice after each time that Jesus says, do you love me? And then Peter responds with, you know that I love you. Jesus doesn't say, no, you don't. He gives him something to do. First, he says, feed my lambs. After the second question, he says, tend my sheep. And after the third question, he says, feed my sheep. Put yourself in Peter's situation. I'm sure that after failing Jesus in such a miserable way, after publicly declaring that you would never do that, I'm sure he's at a place where, you know, will I ever be used by Jesus again? Or will I ever be used by Jesus in the same way that I hoped to be used? How could I ever be you know, a mouthpiece and a spokesman like I have been uh, with the disciples? I mean, look at me. I denied Jesus three times when I claimed I wouldn't. Can he ever really use me in a significant way again? I'm sure those thoughts were going through Peter's head. I know they would have been going through mine. But here in this restoration process, Jesus lets Peter know, I'm not done with you. I still have service for you, very important service. Kind of interesting, Peter, Jesus kind of shifts the analogy when he first met Peter, says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that hasn't changed. Peter's still going to be a man who proclaims the gospel. He's still going to be a man who goes to fish for people. But Jesus is saying, you know what, I even got more than that for you. Not only are you going to be a fisher of men, you're also going to be a shepherd of those that you catch. Because once they're caught, once they come to know the gospel, guess what? They're going to need to be fed, and they're going to need to be tended to. I'm going to need you to teach them the word. I'm going to need you to tend to them and disciple them and to help them grow to be godly men and women. And so, Peter, I'm not done with you. I have more for you. You're going to do even more than just be a fisher of men. I'm going to have you be a shepherd to those that come to accept me. Jesus wants Peter to know something very important. I'm not done with you. And I'm sure just hearing those statements of what Jesus is commanding Peter to do, maybe a part of him was thinking, I don't know if I can, but I'm sure another part of him was thinking, I can't believe you're giving this to me. I can't believe you're trusting me with this. After what I did, I can't believe that you would want to, to use me in this capacity. Jesus also encourages Peter that in the future, Peter's going to grow. In the future, Peter's going to be even more usable than he has up to this point. You see, sometimes being given something of service for Jesus, like shepherding a sheep or whatever it may be, that can be a scary task, especially if you just did some horrible sin like deny Jesus. I'm sure there was a thought in Peter's mind of, will I be able to do this? Will I be able to tend his sheep and, and feed his sheep? Will I have the boldness to do it? I mean, I couldn't even stand up to a little servant girl. Well, notice what Jesus does to encourage Peter about the 
future service that he's going to have for him. And when you first read it, you think, that's not encouraging, but actually it quite is. Listen to verses 18 and 19. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, what Jesus is telling Peter here is how you're going to die. You think, well, (laughs) that's not very encouraging. And notice how he's going to die. Uh, you're going to have your hands stretched out. He's making very clear, Peter, you're going to be crucified. There's going to come a time in your life, in your death, you're going to be crucified. And at first you think, well, that, that would be horrible news. Yeah, that's not going to encourage me at all. But notice right after that, we're told, this Jesus spoke signifying what death Peter would glorify God. And I'm sure that Peter in the back of his mind is thinking, if I'm ever in a situation where that ravenous crowd who's angry, the one that I faced that was seeking to crucify Jesus, if I was ever faced with that kind of crowd again, would I shy away in fear? Would I deny Jesus again? Ah, those, those thoughts had to be going through his mind because he had just recently failed in such a miserable way in front of a crowd like that. And what Jesus is saying is there's going to be another crowd like that. It's going to be even worse for you because they're not coming for me. They're coming for you. They're going to crucify you, Peter. But you know what? In this, you're going to not deny me you're going to glorify me. What an encouragement to know, hey, when I face this again, God's going to have done so much in my life that I'm going to be different. I'm going to respond differently. I'm not going to do what I once did and fail him. The fourth thing Jesus does to restore us is he lets us know that he's not done with us and gives us something to do for him. You know, I think this is one of the most important parts of the restoration process. Obviously, being forgiven and and restored of what we've done is great. But if it just kind of ends there, oh, man, I was doing so much for Jesus, and now it's kind of over. No, he brings us back to a place of, hey, I got service for you still. I want you to serve me. I want you to be used by me. I think oftentimes when we sin, we feel like God can never use me again, especially if it's a big sin. You know, some things we think, oh, that's not so big a deal. Other things are like, man, I'd never be able to be used again. I'm sure this is one of those things with Peter. I denied him three times. Could I ever be used again? Yes, in powerful ways. And the lie that the enemy will tell us is God can never use you again after what you just did. Now, there's going to be consequences to our sin. There's going to be discipline from the God who loves us. But you know what? He's going to restore and he's going to use us again. That's what he wants to do with each of us. He wants to use us for his glory. So don't buy into this lie that because of some sin you committed, God can't use you. I think it's important to remember God didn't start using you because you were some perfect sinless saint. He wasn't looking around saying, oh, there's the one. Look at them. They haven't done anything. I can use them. The rest of these people, nope. He started using you when you were a failure, when you were a sinner, when you didn't have your life together. You know what? Nothing's changed. (laughs) He's still willing to use you in your failure, in your sin, when you don't have everything all together, because he's a God who can do that. So a very important part of Jesus' restoration process is putting us back to work for him. The fifth and final thing we see in this restoration process between Jesus and Peter 
is what Jesus asked Peter to do in verses 19 through 23. This he spoke signifying what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So after Jesus restores Peter and calls him to shepherd his sheep and reveals that you're going to glorify me in your death and how you're going to die through crucifixion, he asks him two very important words, follow me. And this is something we need to understand. Jesus will do everything to get us back to that place of service, fellowship with him in restoring us. But he's not going to force that upon us. He's not going to force us because sin breaks the fellowship. Sin is a cause of, of stopping us serving effectively toward the Lord. And so when he deals with our sin and brings that restoration, he's like, great, now you can start following me again. But he doesn't force that. We have to make that choice. He's offering that once again to Peter. Peter, I've done everything to use you again. Now, just like I called you once before, I'm calling you again. Follow me. One of the things that can get in the way of us following Jesus again is getting distracted with what Jesus is doing in other people's lives, what Jesus has called other people to do. And so right when Jesus says, follow me, Peter should have been like, wherever you want. But notice that Jesus just told Peter, you're going to be crucified. That's how you're going to die. And he says, follow me. And Peter's initial response is, well, what about John? How's he going to die? I, I want to know that. Uh, I'm going to be crucified. Well, well, how's he going to go out? You know, I mean, hopefully it's a little worse than crucifixion if there is such a thing. And so he wants to know, how is John going to die? And he's kind of totally missing the point of what Jesus is trying to do. And so notice Jesus doesn't really even answer his request to know how John's going to die. He just says, if I will that John remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, why does it matter what happens to John? If he stays alive till I return, or if he dies some gruesome death, or whatever it is, what is that to you? I'm calling you to follow me. What I do with John is between me and John, and what I do with you is between me and you. Don't worry about what happens in John's life. Worry about what you're doing. Follow me. And I think too often we can get distracted with, oh, well, what are you doing with this person? And why did you call that person here? And, oh, I wish I would have been called like this, or I wish I had this ministry. Hey, Jesus is saying, you know what? Don't concern yourself with that. I've called you to do this. Are you willing just to follow me with what I've given you to do? Because when you stand before me, that's what I'm going to hold you accountable to. You want to hear the words, well, good, good and faithful servant? Well, have you been faithful in what I gave you? I'm not expecting you to be faithful in what I gave this person or that person or this other person. I've given you what I've given you, and I want you to choose to follow me and serve me in that. So twice Jesus gives Peter this challenge to follow me. I've restored you. I've called you to service. And now you need to make a choice, Peter. Are you going to follow me again? So the fifth thing that Jesus does to restore us 
as he encourages us to once again follow him. Sometimes this is hard for us. Especially when we fail Jesus, there's, there's thoughts from the enemy and maybe even our own you know, personal feelings about ourselves that, I don't know if he really wants that. I mean, could he really want me to still follow him? Could, could he really want to use me? And there's a struggle that sometimes comes where we choose not to follow in the same way. We choose not to want to serve in the same way. Or maybe it's just a fear of, man, if I do this again, I'm going to fail again. And that was so humiliating, and it was so difficult. And there's all sorts of maybe reasons that come to our mind of why we might choose to think, I don't want to follow. Alan Carr wrote this. Regardless of how deep you may have fallen into sin, please know that today the Lord has changed His mind, hasn't changed His mind about you. You might want to repent and come home to Him, but feel that if you do, You'll be some kind of second-class saint. That's just not true. God gives the same command to you today that he gave to Peter then, follow me. All Jesus wants from you is a surrendered life, one that is lived for the glory of God, one that exalts him, and one that is lived in his will and service. He simply wants you to follow him. When you sin, know that Jesus hasn't changed his mind about you. He still loves you. He'll forgive you. He'll restore you. And he wants to continue to use you. Well, John finishes his gospel sharing two important things about what he has written in these final verses, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. John wants his readers to know two important truths about this whole entire gospel that he has written. First, everything that I wrote here is true. My testimony is true. What you read about Jesus here is true. He wants to make sure people understand that, that we understand all of these things are true. And second, what he wrote about Jesus' life is just a very small portion of all that Jesus did. You know, sometimes we read the Gospels and think, okay, we know everything that happened with Jesus on earth. No, we just have a small portion. Notice what John says. You know what? If I would have written everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, Jesus did so much, and he ministered to so many. So many times we're told, and everybody who came to him was healed. I mean, imagine how much we would have written of every single encounter just in one night of hundreds of people coming to Jesus with different ailments, with different diseases, with different problems, and he healing each and every one of them. I mean, what Jesus did is absolutely amazing, and we don't have every detail in the Gospels. But as we noted last chapter, John specifically added the details that he did for a main purpose, that you will know that Jesus is God, and that you would put your trust in him, and that ultimately you would have life in his name. You know, one of the amazing things Jesus does is he restores sinners like you and me. He does that by pursuing us when we sin, by addressing the sin in our life that needs to be dealt with by helping us see our pride so we can humble ourselves before him, by letting us know he's not done with us, 
by giving us something to do for him and by encouraging us to once again follow him. So if you're struggling, you failed like Peter, realize God wants to restore you. Jesus is pursuing you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you. He wants to use you. It's the enemy who lies to you that says, you know what? You can never be used by God. You can never serve him. He can never do anything through your life. That's not true. Look what he did through Peter. Look what he did through Paul. I mean, Paul murdered people. God used him in powerful ways. He can use you, and he can use me.